Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hello, this is Richard Howard for the AWS Angel Investor Podcast. With me today is George Burgess. He uh, was the founder of Gojimo. It was an exam preparation app, raised money from Index and Jamjar Investments, recently sold it to The Telegraph. Recently, it was really more a couple of years ago. He has uh, since then founded a startup called The Intro, which is a dating app. We can touch on that as well. He has angel invested in around 15 companies, such as uh, BridgeU, FatMap, and Thriver. He is also, according to his LinkedIn, at least we've not discussed it prior to the podcast, co-founder of EdTech Exchange. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. And that, that is all correct. The LinkedIn is is on, on top of things and all... I keep it very much up to date. So LinkedIn well and Wikipedia, and we, oh, with that one I don't I don't have much control over. <laughs> I think a PR company set that up many many years ago, and it probably hasn't been updated since. So it is surprisingly accurate. See, good, to good. Say it's those not been those, link, those uh, Wikipedia editors are, are all over it. Clearly tracking me closely. Yeah. With the previous guests on this podcast, most of them have been angel investors. You have had the operational side prior to doing the angel investing. So let's, if we can, touch on that a little bit. Can you tell us the story of, of, of Gojimo, everything around that, the, including the, the raising money, how you did that for the founders who might be listening? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, that could be an entire podcast in itself. But oh. the, I mean, the short, the short summary is Gojimo was a, a revision app, a test prep app for high school kids. So we helped British kids doing their national exams, the GCSEs and A-levels prepare for those. And we, you know, started in 2009 when I was a student myself, um, and then kind of grew and grew and grew. I dropped out of Stanford to do it full time. And we got it to a point where 45% of kids in this country who were taking those exams were, were using the product. So we had this tremendous journey and saw tremendous growth. The struggle was, and this is often the case in that sector, um, we really couldn't monetize. I mean, we had you know 16-year-olds who discovered the product themselves, using it on their own phone with their own App Store account. Getting any money out of them was impossible. It was too seasonal for advertising. So it was a really, really tough journey. The fundraising, you know, we, we raised that first round, which was, was led by Index. That's when Index Europe were doing more kind of seed stage level investing. Um, I think in probably the end of 2013, I'd kind of taken this break from Stanford because the business was developing and interesting and I was struggling to do, you know, but be a, both a full-time student and a yeah. full-time CEO with a team in the UK. Um, and I said, I'll take some time out and if I can raise you know, a decent venture capital round from a, from a well-known VC, I'll consider kind of foregoing the education Completely, which is which is what ended up happening. I had an intro to Index from one of my angel investors. Yep. Met Saul Klein, and prior to that, his associate, and they were just you know they were very excited about education. They remain excited about education to this day, and I you know I think they just took a liking to what we were doing. And at that point, we'd had we'd had decent traction. I mean, we we had a bunch of other apps kind of prior to Gojimo, which did similar things, which I think you know probably had nearly a hundred thousand downloads by that point. So it's not like. We were kind of brand new to the scene. Uh, we'd worked with uh, BBC Active, which at that point was a joint venture between Pearson and the BBC, doing the BBC Bite Size apps. We'd done, we'd licensed content, I think, from Oxford University Press and a couple of other big publishers. So we were kind of one of the leading you know, mobile learning app developers, which was obviously qu quite a niche, particularly back then. 
but gave us a little bit of, of credibility and a stamp of authority in the space. And I think they just thought, okay, this is you know this is worth taking taking a punt on. Um, I was, I think, 21 at the time, so it was all kind of new to me. I was yeah. extremely naive. I think I asked for about three times more money than we ended up raising. But you know, they were very patient, <laughs> patient with me. Just sat you down and explained, no, 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 that's mm. too much. This is how much mm, we'll yeah. give you. This is not a Series B. Yeah. This is a seed round for a pre-revenue company yeah. with a 21-year-old founder. Yeah, no, I had a bit of an education. Okay. Awesome. So you you raised the money, you built the company, and then um, in 2017, I believe, sold it to the Telegraph. Yeah. So I, I, you know, as I said earlier, we got to this point where we had this tremendous audience, but were struggling to kind of find the revenue model. And we we looked at raising more money. We had a couple of options on the table. We also were like struggling to get like big checks in at that point, which is kind of what we needed to sustain the team we'd built. Um, and we therefore agreed with the investors to look at what the exit opportunities might be. The Telegraph we actually didn't approach. They kind of came to us separately and completely unexpectedly. Their then COO, now CEO, Nick Hugh, was looking at ways to get the brand in front of younger audiences. So, you know, the typical Telegraph readers a little bit on the slightly more mature side. Sure. Um, the stereotypes, you know, hold true. And they were looking at ways that they could promote the brand to a younger audience and, and get that brand exposure at a younger age and, and try and kind of migrate them to be readers. Um, and they thought, you know, acquiring Gojimo could be a good way to do that. So that was the thinking behind the acquisition. Um, so they bought, you know, the, the entire product and a bunch of the team went over and I joined initially kind of on a part-time basis, but actually ended up working there full-time for, for a couple of years. I left only this summer. Okay, awesome. And then so you went from that and what kind of led you into uh, the world of angel investing? Well, for the first time I was making some money and I had a little bit of cash in the bank. Yeah. And I've always, you know, I, I kind of live and breathe startups is what I fall asleep thinking about and wake up wanting to work on. And you know, most of my best friends at that point had become entrepreneurs and I was very well connected in, in the kind of the the startup scene and ecosystem. And I just, I wanted to start backing people I knew and companies yeah. they were working on. And I, you know, I'd done a lot of kind of informal advice at that stage where you know, friends would take you for dinner and they were trying to figure out how to raise their next round or how to position themselves or were working on a product and they wanted your input. And I kept thinking like, this, this is so exciting, but I'm getting kind of nothing back other than a free meal. I'd quite like to have a little bit of, a little bit of something on the table so that you know, if, if this works out, it could be a bit more exciting and I'm a little bit more invested than I would be otherwise. And so I, I, you know, I started writing small angel checks. It happened kind of very organically. Yep. And it's kind of snowballed a little bit. I've got a fairly prolific portfolio at this point. I mean, I've done, I think, nearly 15 investments across a couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do see it at this stage. It's so early for me. We've no idea if any of those will be big successes yet. Sure. I do see it as a bit of an education. I mean, I kind of think of that angel investing budget as a bit of an educational budget. Put some money in, learn about a new sector, work with the CEO quite closely and try and you know, take learnings away from it. Yeah. And then if there's you know upside in the long run, even better. Yeah, so uh, I started angel investing this year, and a VC friend of mine um, just smiled at me and went, "Oh, you're donating money to startups," <laughs> uh, and I was like, "Yeah, but hopefully one of them will will give the money back." You know, everybody knows the yeah. the home run strategy, the all that stuff with with startups. But I think if uh, as an angel investor, if you set a certain amount of money aside and you're okay with, you know, um, metaphorically setting that money on fire, yeah. And you don't have expertise. This is how I'm going to get rich. It's, it's that startup. Then, then I think it's, it's the right. Yeah, thing to I do. think you know if there's money you can't afford to lose, that's a yeah. bit of a problem. And certainly, I found in my you know we had a fair few angel investors in Gojimo, yeah. and it was the ones who maybe 
you know, not to like judge on on wealth and stuff, but maybe put in a, you know one of their only angel investments and put in a bit more money than they maybe should have done were you know were, were probably a little bit more um, challenging to deal with and, and a little bit more attached in a maybe unhealthy way. Yeah. And so when you know, when you present them the kind of thinking around, okay, well we, we've just got to sell the business at this point, like it's not, it's not going to go any further. They would be the ones saying, no, 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 like you've got to keep fighting, like we'll we'll put in more money, double down, kind of thing. And I, you know, I mean, at that point, you, you as a founder have kind of admitted that this is not working out the way you want it to. And and, yeah. and I think that's when it becomes a slight issue. When we, we had no problems with investors, but you could just kind of see the thinking maybe was verging on one that was a little bit unhealthy and, and maybe they either needed a more diverse portfolio or they needed to invest a little bit less in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, perfectly prepared for all 15 of those companies to lose my money. I mean, a lot of them are, are actually, you know, friends of mine, which is which is one thing I do. I like to kind of just back friends who I would be talking about um, their business anyway for that reason we talked about earlier. So I think when you're also friends, you're a little bit more cautious around the attitude you take and, you know, it would be a struggle to kind of have a difficult conversation with them down the line. So I'm very prepared yeah. to to walk away if, if need be. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, you kind of just looking at the portfolio, um, mm. a bunch of the companies are kind of in the education space. You've co-founded EdTech Exchange. Do you want to just touch on what EdTech Exchange is? Yeah, no, sure. So EdTech Exchange, I mean, in simplest terms, it almost became a kind of trade association for EdTech. Yeah. Um, there was, there's a, the, the main kind of trade body in the education space is called BISA, British Educational Suppliers Association. And I think back then when we started EdTech Exchange, there was a little bit of gap in support for the education technology sector. And we tried to fill that. And it was really like a founder's first um, approach. You know, we would do dinners almost weekly with like up to 12 founders where it was kind of a Chatham House rules, share your biggest problem, get 11 other founders feeding back and, you know, inputting on that problem. And it was a really, I mean, it was almost like an emotional experience for yeah. For, for a lot of us, especially early on as we kind of arrived at that format and was, were doing it for the first the first few times. And then it it really kind of snowballed. We started supporting all the major events and conferences in the EdTech space and were invited to help curate a lot of the conference agendas and we're starting to advise government on how to support the space and so on. And we ended up, you know, I kind of bought out my co-founder a few years ago and then we ended up actually selling EdTech Exchange to Bisa, okay. who we operated it with in a, in a JV for the last kind of year, year and a half. You know, they realized we were doing really valuable stuff in that space and I think you know, realized that they needed to be supporting that space better. I was at a point where I was maybe looking at taking a step back from education. So it was, you know, again, that was a nice outcome given the circumstances and, and the timing. But it gave me great visibility on the education space and a lot of the founders in that space are personal friends of mine and remain so to this day. I've only, I think I've only actually done two investments in ed tech. Okay. You know, despite being the kind of the chairman and before that the CEO of the the trade association, I think it's a really challenging yeah. sector. Um, and the two I have backed are, are very close friends, but or also had like a, a lot of traction already, so they, they weren't quite the kind of crazy pre-seed um, angel investments that I normally write. They're a little bit more proven, which which gave me slightly more comfort. But that is a having you know, having been there and kind of watched the space for nearly ten years now, if not already ten years, yeah. That is a tough, tough, tough sector to work in. Yeah, no, I was because I was going to ask you. You mentioned when you were talking about Gojimil, monetizing students is is, and this is school students, not not even university students. Monetizing students is is very, very hard. So I was going to ask you, you know, having uh, invested in some edtech companies, having been uh, the founder of Edtech Exchange, if you if we have edtech founders listening now, do you have any advice for them around the monetization piece? Is mm. there is there has there been like a, um, a magic wand that, oh, that is how you do it? Or is it just, it's still really, really tough? 
Well, I, it's it's really tough. Yeah. I mean, no matter which route you go down. We, so we were, um, and you know, probably in the minority, we were a B to C company. You know, we were going direct to student. That's a challenge because we, in that case, we were targeting kids in their teenage years, where you know they have we were a mobile app. They had their own device. They had their own app store account. They had their own bank account and debit yeah. card at that stage. That is a very difficult audience to make money from. Other B two C companies have seen a little bit of success doing the, the kind of parental thing, and certainly like the tutoring market is big enough to support some startups, and we're seeing some interesting stuff going on in, in tuition. But it's 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 still really really challenging. The majority of startups in the edtech space are, are B two B, and so they're selling to schools, and that in itself, I mean, everything you read about in the papers with regards to school budgets is absolutely true. I can't stress enough how much schools are struggling. And one of the best examples of that was one of our kind of EdTech Exchange members, founder of a, of a great company that's kind of has software for primary schools, came to one of the dinners maybe about a year ago and said, you know, I just got off the phone with a head teacher. He wants to buy our software, but he tells me he can't even afford his glue sticks, right? Yeah. So these schools do not have the budgets um, for anything but the absolute essential software and technology. And so I think the, you know, the trick... For, for the companies looking at that B2B side, is either to make sure they're building something that is absolutely core to what a school needs and not just a nice to have, or to look at international markets, because that's where we see a little bit more success. So, I mean, BridgeU, which is one of my portfolio companies that you mentioned earlier, have really focused entirely on international schools. Okay. Because international schools, you know, they're kind of fee paying schools, they operate a little bit more like SMEs, they kind of make decisions within about 90 days. That's a completely different environment and, and um, sales cycle to yeah. selling to an academy in the UK that is is you know government funded. Yeah, no, 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 it makes sense. Um, so yeah, if you are listening to this podcast, you are an ed tech founder or a prospective ed tech founder. It is hard to make money. It is hard to get that money, but it's valuable. Probably what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, and that that was one thing that was amazing about the space was the people because m- most people who go into education technology really care about yeah. you know making a difference and making an impact and so the people that you interacted with and worked with in that space were incredible but and 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 what's interesting is everyone has an opinion because everyone's been through education so everyone has an idea of yeah. what might fix the problems or what might help improve things um, and so you get a lot of people looking at the education sector whether it's ex-students like me you know I started that business as a student whether it's parents who have kids in the system right now or whether it's teachers and you kind of heard this term like teacherpreneur cropping up a few a few years back. Never heard that term. Well, in the, in, <laughs> in our niche ed tech sector, this teacherpreneur thing got started, was being thrown around quite a lot for, you know, for teachers who had kind of found a problem that they were facing in the classroom yeah. and started to try and solve that. And I think, again, like a, a lot of the, in a lot of cases, the, these were really niche issues. So do you need a software that is solely for lesson planning? Maybe, but like if that was part of a wider suite that was you know really core to to, to schools and and to a teacher's needs, it might perform a little bit better when it comes to sales. Yeah, cool. So I'm going to circle back a little bit to uh, to you as an angel investor. Uh, you mentioned that at least some of the early investments that you made, in particular, were were friends of yours or really good friends of yours. Other than being a friend of George Burgess, how do I get your money? Uh, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what I don't like, which happens, I mean, on a daily basis. As soon as you put kind of angel investor on your LinkedIn, yeah. you get all these cold messages from you know people who are, I mean, look, I get it. They're hustling and they're trying to reach out. Of course. Um, and a lot of people will say, okay, I'm not like diversifying enough in terms of my reach as an investor by kind of ignoring these messages. But most of the time, people who are, who are pinging me on LinkedIn asking for, basically for cash, 
have mutual contacts and they're yeah. not even bothering to ask for an introduction. So almost anyone who gets an introduction to me, you know, as long as I think what they're doing is interesting, I'll, I'll hop on a call at the very least. I might meet them for coffee. Like I try to be quite proactive in terms yeah. of like deal flow and meeting other entrepreneurs and founders. I mean, I, I love doing it and, you know, more often than not learn something from those conversations. So it's kind of in my in my interest. But these these cold messages on LinkedIn are just not the way to go. Yeah. And you know, even VCs who kind of say that they look at those, I can kind of guarantee probably don't look at them with as much credibility as a, as a warm intro yeah. from one of their portfolio founders or something. So I would I would advise against that. I think wherever you have a, a mutual contact, the easiest thing is is just an introduction. Yeah. Um, yeah, Rich, if you were to introduce me to a company tomorrow, I would be much more interested in looking at that because you have an idea of what I'm interested in and how I invest sure. and how much I invest and what sort of companies I like. And it would therefore maybe appeal to me and perhaps be a little bit more curated than something random coming through off a social, off a social yeah. network. Being in startups, so you've been in the startup space for you know 10 years. I've been in startup space since 2012. So that's seven years. I'm just doing the, the math in my head. Apologies, I have, a, I have a new child, didn't get much sleep. If you're on LinkedIn and we have zero connections in common, there is an automatic skepticism there because you're like, I have connection, I, you know, I've got a thousand connections on LinkedIn, 99% of them are in the startup space. And if you're not connected to even one of those people, right. that's a red flag. Right. So, uh, I mean, the only argument against that, which I've kind of debated with some people recently, and I, and, and I think it's a valid point, is this whole thing around diversity. So sure. does that mean... You know, we're all kind of just reinvesting in the same people and the same type of people day in, day out. And I, I think that is a slight risk, right? But there are other ways to, to get in touch with people. Again, like, you know, if you could actually figure out my email address, I'm slightly more likely to kind of take a look at your yeah. pitch deck than the kind of annoying LinkedIn message attachment from an email. So I think, you know, it's just like put a bit more effort in try and connect with me on Twitter and have a conversation first and then say yeah. I'm running a startup do you want to take a look rather than just the blanket kind of sales pitch yeah um, and please no cryptocurrency stuff I just <laughs> I do not I'm, ICOs no thank you I can't believe that's still happening oh, I had an ICO that I was just going to get your money for oh I'll, yeah I'll, okay. I'll, I'll bet it I'll bet it now <laughs> yeah I, th I think with, with regards to like the code messages the LinkedIn messages you're, you're, you're absolutely right on the on the diversity point but what I would say is if you are a founder who has no network in the startup ecosystem, that is fine. But then it is your job to go and build that network. And I, you know, from my personal perspective, I don't know that my building that network would start with investors. It would start with other entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, so if you are a founder who doesn't have that network and you're listening to this, you might be 18 years old and uh, or, or you're, you know, somebody from a background that hasn't been in the entrepreneurial space, my recommendation wouldn't be to go out and try and pitch investors to begin with because you don't really know what you're doing. You don't know what you should say. You don't know what you shouldn't say. Go out and speak to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are incredibly open people. Mm. And if you reach out to, you know, 50 entrepreneurs who are in a similar space or, you know, an adjacent space to something you're building in, you're saying, hey, I'm doing this. I, I you know, I've never built anything before, but I'd love to five, 10, 15 minutes of your time just to figure out if I'm doing the right thing, if I'm focused on the right stuff. I think a lot of entrepreneurs will be open to that, open to having a conversation with you. And then you have a LinkedIn connection and right. then you have a secondary right. connection to, to right. um, George or, or myself. And that is how you kind of grow the network. And, and there's also all the conferencing and events that yeah. happen both in every sector and kind of more widely in the startup space. I mean, I do less of them now personally, but you know, in my early days, I was going to every single thing that looked even remotely relevant. Yeah. And that was an incredible way to start you know, meeting 
founders and in some cases one or two angel investors or VCs. And again, you know, a way to kind of like puff out that LinkedIn connection and start building a network in the space because those are entirely accessible to anyone. I mean, just look at what's on, you know, Meetup and stuff. Yeah. Those can be really, really helpful. And 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 when you do kind of reach out, whether it's a cold email or, or a cold um, connection, if you have to do that, make it super relevant in, in kind of your message. So uh, I had Eamon Carey sitting in that seat a little while ago, and he said, you know, someone reached out to him and went, I've got a business. Do you want to hear more? Right. And he was like, <laughs> uh, sure. But, you know, if you if you want to reach out to George, you say, hey, George, I know you've been, you know, an EdTech founder before. You've uh, founded EdTech Exchange. Even though I know you think uh, margins are hard in, in the education space, this is what I'm building. This is why I think you'd be interested. I'd love to have you know 15 yeah. minutes of your time. Be super relevant. Don't yeah. send a blanket email with a you know mail merge with the, with just the name change. Be like as relevant as you can. Reference companies that you have the the person has built or has invested in before and why they would be interested in speaking to you. And and include in in you know those couple of lines and no more than a couple of lines. Yeah. Right. I mean the paragraphs are completely unnecessary, but like the absolute basics, right? What the company does, what problem you're solving, and some of the traction. I mean if you contact me about an ed tech company and say we're already in 100 schools and haven't even raised financing yet, that suddenly becomes a lot more interesting than someone who has a pre-revenue business and, and is solving like a tiny niche as we talked about before. Yeah. So I, th I think, you know, try and get someone excited in those first two lines and then attach the deck so they can have a look at that if they if they are intrigued. Yeah. But the, you know, the kind of the polite, like, oh, I'm running a business, I'd love to tell you more, can we have a chat? And this is the sector we're in, is, yeah. is really not gonna, is not gonna cut it. And absolutely, absolutely never, ever, ever ask the person to sign an NDA before you tell them what you're doing. Yeah. That is that is the biggest, like, red flag turnoff yeah. that, uh, that just kind of marks you out as a founder, as an amateur, because A, uh, angel investors, VCs are never gonna sign your NDA. And they also recognize that ideas don't mean anything it is all execution it's yeah i mean you see this with a lot of first-time founders who are kind of like oh we're in stealth mode and we, we you know, think they have something incredibly valuable and in some cases they might yeah but who are doing that kind of we're going to be highly confidential we're going to kind of restrict information flows they're just making it harder for themselves to raise money yeah and as you said like ideas are cheap it's kind of operational experience and and drive that is what leads to success i would much rather talk about something quite openly and spread spread the word so like the industry knows that I'm working on something quite interesting and have other people talk about it and see, you know, potentially even drive inbounds, then keep something super close so that no one knows I'm working on it or even fully understands it. That just, it just doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah. So having yourself, you know, you are yourself an angel investor, you've raised angel money, you've also raised like seed VC money. If you look at the ecosystem nowadays, if you were to advise an entrepreneur, would you have um, a preference for them? If you can raise a decent round just of angels now. Yeah. And I think if you're going to raise a seed VC, it needs to be a minimum of half a million before you kind of go to the seed VC route. But saying all those things were equal, would you have a preference of advising a founder of where they should go, either going the angel route, going the seed VC, combining them? What would be your advice? Oh, <laughs> I mean, this is really tough. And and it's, it's tricky because we... We closed a uh, seed round or pre-seed round even for the intro this summer. And originally we'd gone out solely to raise angel capital. And we ended up with a VC leading a much bigger round. So okay. I kind of contradicted my own plans there. I kind of think it depends on like your background and, and what your appetite is. Um, VCs are hard. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of seed money in the UK ecosystem now. There's a lot of VCs who do seed funding. Um, many of them say they do seed funding and don't, and I always think that's quite frustrating and misleading, and, and their expectations are really high even for the seed check. 
But you can spend a lot of time and you can waste a lot of time trying to get the intros to all those VCs, having all the conversations, inevitably getting to like a second round with a lot of them, and then it dying quite quickly. Whereas with a lot of angels, you can have a coffee and have an answer like the next day, if not in the meeting. So I think the, the angel route is the... The slightly easier one, but I'll caveat them saying you know it's a lot of work in the kind of networking sense. Yeah. Right? And this is where people seem to struggle the most is getting the introductions to the angels. I have a yeah. lot of people come to me and say, "Oh, can you introduce me to some angels?" And and I try, but it's tough because actually, like the bulk of the money, both for now for the intro, but previously for GoTo, actually came from venture. Yeah. And we had some angels, but very few. And I know they look for very very specific things. So it's difficult for me just to like to kind of spam the four or five angels I know quite well with you know businesses I might like, but inevitably know that won't intrigue them. But I think that's where, you know, coming back to what we were talking about before, like the whole networking game comes into yeah. play. And actually, I think some of these angel groups solve that problem quite nicely. I mean, there's a lot of these angel syndicates who, you know, put together their their, their kind of like pitch nights and you go and you, you kind of pitch to 15, 20, 25 angels in a room. And I think that's a really quick way to get in front of a bunch of people with 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 money. Um, and actually, we did do that for one of our one of the kind of two or three Gojimo um, fundraising rounds we did, and it was a really efficient way. Instead yeah. of having to do twenty individual coffees to just pitch a room and then know the five people who come up and talk to you afterwards are the ones who are most interested. And and the conversion rate on an angel is just is just slightly better than a VC. You know, they're not typically not quite as sophisticated investors. I mean, with the EIS and SEIS tax breaks, a lot of these are kind of like ex City of London finance yeah. people wanting to have a little bit of fun and with the um, ability to afford to take some risks yeah. in in the in the tech space and it's it's therefore just a little bit easier and the tax breaks re- i mean those really help too no for for yeah. sure and the, and the economics of it are completely different like a, yeah. a vc oh. looks at you and they you have to be a fund returner right you absolutely have to be at minimum returning the fund for yeah. them to to even like contemplate investing in you whereas if you are an angel investor and i invest in the company and they get like a small exit. If I triple my money in a few years, I'm not getting that anywhere else. Right, right. Spot on. But I, I do think like the reason that a lot of angel investors go for that is because they haven't necessarily actually thought out their own investment economics. Yeah. And and that is one of the slight, because, you know, the risk they take is is equivalent to a risk an early stage VC might sure. take. Um, and if they want to make a return on, on you know, their fund, if you will, their portfolio, yeah. they're probably looking for like similar returns and, and numbers that are to a v, to what a VC might. So, you know, you may make a 3x return on one investment, but if like the rest of the investments yeah. you make fail, actually you kind of made it, you've, well, you have made a loss overall. No, of course. And it's getting goes back to the, the, the earlier point we made. Yeah. Like you, that's the pile of money that you'd be okay to set right. on fire. But then, but then but also then if you say, okay, well, actually they've they've done only SIS and they've got half that money back already off yeah. their, their tax bill, that, that changes the economics quite a bit. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the angel investors I've pitched in the past or have spoken to, not, not to discredit them because they're kind of just doing it for fun in yeah. a lot of cases, but many of them haven't thought about this stuff. They really haven't thought about the the kind of economics of what they're doing. Um, they've just, you know, they're working really hard and they happen to have spare cash and they come to an event with a glass of wine in the evening that a bunch yeah. of their mates also go to and they see something that intrigues them and they put in some money. So I I think, you know, they they many of them, and we're massively stereotyping here, are doing it for a bit of passion and haven't necessarily thought about the, the economics of, the, of their returns. Yeah. No, fair enough. That was me early on too, right? Yeah, so, of course. I think, I yeah. think that is... Um... 
a lot of like early angel investors. And if if it's something that you want to be serious about as an angel investor, if it's you know if it's like oh I'll go to this event every three or four months and invest in one company and you know it's my money from from banking or whatever and you don't really care about it, it's one of your multiple investments, not just in companies but in real estate and whatever else. Then then sure. But if you're actually like you know what I really care, I care about this ecosystem, I want to help build it. You would learn very yeah. like yeah. over time through um, through other angel investors, through VCs, through the network. And this, and actually, this is where some of the angel groups and the syndicates are really valuable because yep. I mean, I'm a member of the Stanford um, Angel Investment Group here. In even London. though you didn't graduate, even even though I don't have the degree, oh, I was I you know gosh. I was there long enough to qualify <laughs> for the angel network. But you know, I'm a member of that group, and and because there's a group of us typically working on each deal, we're certainly doing a lot more DD than like I would do individually. Yeah, and that's a benefit to me, and and might sway my opinion either way as a result. So you you kind of get the benefits of the crowd, particularly when stuff is is quite well structured and thought out. I mean, I know that is it the Cambridge Business Angels, or whatever, do do this stuff. Like, yeah, know, they have like a whole process about it, and and they've thought about it quite a bit as well. Um, and they'll have a lead angel and stuff like that. So some of these groups are quite sophisticated in how they do it, and they almost act like a fund would. Yeah. Um, and you can certainly benefit from you know learning from that group and learning from the process and, and being a benefit of the kind of the crowds, not quite the crowd, but your group's wisdom, if you will. No, for sure. And I think if you're if you're a first time founder, it, it's also invaluable feedback on your company mm. and your pitch. Mm. So you know if building that network through through angel groups makes sense. I think uh, accelerators, good good accelerators. Oh, there's a lot of accelerators out there. Not all of them are good. Yeah, but do you I, want to name and shame some accelerators? Yeah, for sure. Let's just go through the list here. Just uh, let Matt, the producer, edit it out immediately. But you know, the, the, the really good ones. So if you think of like Techstars as an example, and I'm, I'm biased, right, I'm a Techstars right. alumni myself. If you go through Techstars, you are going to build a network in three months of a significant number of potential investors in your yeah. company. Yeah. By the way, we should say, because there's no cameras here, you're wearing your Techstars hoodie, so you really are a bit of a fanboy. I actually own four Techstars jumpers. Three of them hoodies, one a Patagonia top, of course. which my colleague Joe Shamash got for me. I am a sucker for anything free, Yeah. any logo. If you don't want my money, or George's money, or anybody's money, but you want somebody to advertise your company, send us swag. feel free to send me hoodies. Yeah, I'm I will gonna wear give you, them. Um, a jacket for the intro. I am I more than this morning. They're quite, quite stylish, if I might say so myself. I, so we'll get I am you one of those. More than happy to wear anything. My wife might have questions about why I'm wearing a jacket for a dating company. I will be happy to let her listen to this podcast and understand for herself that go. it is yeah. only because I have three children and can't afford clothes my own <laughs> that I need to rely saving, on saving everybody else's charity. Expenditure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, I mean, Texas, I mean, I think you said you had Eamon here previously. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm on Eamon's email list and he sends out kind of a list of investment opportunities. I think almost every two weeks now he tries yeah. to do it. So you're, you're just getting the kind of exposure that an individual startup who's found that has a limited angel network is not necessarily going to get. Yeah. Um, and, and that is the power of a good accelerator, particularly run by someone like Eamon, who has such an amazing network. No, for sure. And Eamon, uh, on this podcast, we talked about the sharing deal flow. Umo. He also gave out his Gmail email address. Okay. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to that one. And then you can email Eamon. And if he's interested in your business, then you can get on either Techstars or the sharing deal flow email and ultimately, you know, get to other angel investors. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to give out my Gmail address, but George, <laughs> I would recommend it. George at the intro.com for anyone who does want to send me something. I do try to reply to every email, but two lines, traction, pitch, problem, deck, in case I'm interested. Absolutely. You mentioned at the beginning that you um, you know, invest in friends' companies. You're a, an operator yourself. 
Um, so you try and help where you can. As you scaled up your investing or as you are scaling up your investing, how are you going to try to manage that, you know, your time basically mm. of being able to help the startups that you're invested in versus, you know, working on your own company and all the other things that you're interested in? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, so I, I, what I've found is that um, some founders are either better at or, or more willing to like reach out for help when they need it. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of my portfolio companies very rarely like come and ask me for anything. Um, which in some ways I think is a mistake. I mean, because, like, you know, there are definitely things I could I could help them on, but in many cases they're just getting on with it and you yeah. know, maybe there isn't stuff that I, I can support. So already there's only a segment of of the portfolio that I, I kind of proactively support in, in, a, in a kind of hand-holding kind of way. And sometimes that's as simple as like, let's just have a meal and chat through like some of the problems you're facing. I mean, being, as you'll know, being a founder or co-founders can be really lonely yeah. and like you can't share your problems with your team. You can't share your problems with most of your investors. And I like to think that like I'm one of the few investors you might be willing to come to and say like, here's why I think we're going to fail in six months yeah. time. Like, what do I do about it? And I think that's where being, you know, having an operational background is incredibly valuable. I mean, I certainly found that my best investors historically were the ones who'd done it themselves. And it's not just because they can provide kind of practical support and advice. It's actually because they have a certain level of empathy yeah. that no other, well, many other investors and a lot of VCs do not have because they've not been in your shoes. They've yeah. not seen the bank account balance like dropping every month and looked around at their team with a, you know mortgages and stuff to pay yeah. for. And that can be incredibly stressful. And so people who can, who just get it, yeah, can be really supportive, even if it's not in a kind of practical advice kind of way, even if it's just a you know, shoulder to cry on. And I think the, the empathy, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, the empathy thing is like so important. You can't imagine what it's like until you go through it. You know, I, th I think I've said this on, on a different podcast. I remember uh, when I was going through, this was after Texas, after we'd raised our seed round with my startup, and I was waking up and my bed was like drenched in sweat, like just drenched. And it was, and I was like, oh my God. And then, you know, I Googled it and it was like, you either are suffering from like severe anxiety or you have cancer. And I was like, well, it's just never Google any. Uh, yeah, never Google symptoms. That's, yeah, never Google that's symptoms. That's the worst. Thing but like, you, can you know, do. you know, that was like the, that was a symptom of something that, you know, we were going through as the, as the company wasn't kind of hitting the traction and the, the, uh, the milestones that we wanted it to hit. And if you have never, you know, woken up in a bed drenched with sweat because you didn't know what was going to happen or how to get through the things. You can't empathy. You just, you just can't imagine what it's like, and then empathize with the founders you're you're invested in or, or trying to help. Yeah, and it's just. I mean, this is this is why I think actually what we did at the Tech Exchange was so valuable, where we do these kind of networking dinners for founders only and in a private room, where the whole setup was share your biggest problem with eleven other founders who typically aren't competing with you. Yep. who can input on it and who get it. And and that's why it was incredibly, an incredibly like emotional experience for a lot of those people because it's the first time they had this outlet where they could be truly open and, and share some of their you know biggest challenges and the things that were literally keeping them up at night. Um, I think, you know, having done this now, doing this for the second time, I'm better at recognizing when I'm stressed and facing yeah. anxiety and and figuring out how to cope with it. I mean, certainly like over the summer as we were kind of closing this round, I had a couple of these bouts of like heart palpitations. I was like, okay, I've had heart palpitations before and been to a cardiologist because I was so concerned about them. And that yeah. was three years ago when my like startup couldn't make any money. I know this is due to stress and anxiety. How am I going to, you know, mitigate that? Um, and, you know, I'll be very open. I did two things right then. I like left London and went to, you know, a very kind of special and private place for me where I could still work, but I was in kind of much more of a comfortable and relaxed environment. Yeah. And I put the 
some of the investors I was kind of, you know, negotiating terms with on mute on my WhatsApp. So I didn't have to get their like 10 p.m. counter to a term uh, because that was one of the worst things was like the, you know, the outside of traditional work hour yeah. messaging around like, you know, quite big negotiations for, you know, a term sheet or a, a legal document. Um, and that way I could, you know, I only had to deal with it when I was ready to like go into WhatsApp and proactively read whatever the counter offer might be. Yeah. So, those, I mean, those were two things. And, and that, you know, within two days, I was much more in control of like my emotion yeah. again. It was still very, very stressful. But I see a lot of first-time founders who like don't recognize that in themselves. And, you know, I've said to friends and founders, like, you need to go on a holiday right now. Yeah. And the the most common feedback is like, oh, I can't leave. Like, yeah. the, you know, the business is going to fail without me. Or, you know, I can't, I couldn't possibly do that. We've got X, Y, and Z come up in the next three weeks. And more often than not, they can, right? Yeah. They can take three days off and they just don't realize it and they can't recognize it and they've not done it before and they don't realize that the business will be absolutely fine when they come back after a long weekend. Yeah. But you, you know, I can at least recognize that in them and try to push them to a, a country break or whatever it is that yeah. they might benefit from. But I think that's incredibly important. This whole, like, we could talk about like well-being and mental health and all that stuff. I mean, I, yeah. I don't like to overdo it on that subject, but I do think it's we have this weird mentality amongst founders that kind of pretending you work from 7 a.m. to the early hours of the morning is something considered yeah. positive and beneficial. And like, it just really is not. No. You know, you're a much better founder if you are well-rested and absolutely focused and thinking things through properly. I mean, the, you know, the biggest biggest things you have to do are not the kind of like day-to-day -day operational responding to all 150 emails. It's making big decisions that are yeah. going to impact the future of the company. And that stuff requires like time, space, and thought and a well-rested mind. No, for sure. And people seem to still overlook this, which I find absolutely bizarre. I think I think there's times as a founder where you have to recognize this is, an actu this is actually a time when I need to be in the office till 10 o'clock. This yeah. is one of those times. There yeah. are always going to be those times. And then you have to recognize... I'm just caught up in like the the blitz, the tornado of everything right now. And what I'm doing is not like ultimately that important. You know, right. it's day-to-day -day stuff right. and it's just kind of getting on top of me and I can leave this for three days and it'll still be fine. Yeah. And you need to be able to kind of differentiate between those two things. Totally. I don't know if you saw the um, the Netflix documentary, Netflix AWS customer, by the way, uh, <laughs> documentary of uh, Inside Bill's Brain, the... Yeah. Um, the follow Bill Gates three episodes really good. He takes this um, this book week basically. He goes away to like a cabin in, in the woods. Obviously, it's a very nice cabin. It's Bill Gates's cabin, and he just like takes books and yeah. thinks and reads and yeah. writes. And you know that is like his time to kind of like be away from all and power down and 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 yeah, all that his, stuff. His reading weeks, which he yeah. seems to do quite frequently, based on yeah. that documentary. Um, but I, I mean, I thought that was an incredibly insightful um, approach. You know, even Bill Gates, who's now you know no longer or less involved in Microsoft. Um, obviously very involved in the foundation, still yeah. like carves out these week-long periods where he goes alone and yeah. just sits and reads. And in his case, which I thought was quite interesting, he's 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 often going with a goal where he like wants to learn about a specific topic. Yeah. And that's something I've done a bit of. I mean, I did take a break after we closed the round. I took a kind of a week and a half off, you know, checking emails occasionally. But I also had a, a couple of goals. Like there were a couple of books I wanted to read about building a dating app, like the kind of social psychology and like the academic research around like attraction and dating and, yeah. and how that associates with the online world and, and kind of carving out that time to do it was was really beneficial. Um, I probably wouldn't have got through those books if I was just trying to read it, you know, for 30 minutes every night before bed. And to us, they're not the sort of books you want to read for 30 minutes every night before bed. So no, I thought that was really interesting. No, for sure. All right. So you've been an operator yourself. You've had, you found a company, you sold a company, you're an angel investor, started a new company. 
what is the best advice you can give for a founder who's maybe just raised their round? So they've raised their round, they've closed their round, because we've talked about, you know, meeting investors, introduction to investors, that kind of thing. And, and another podcast, we've talked really kind of specifically around how you actually go around getting commitments and stuff. So I'm, an, I'm a founder, I've closed my round now, and I've, you know, I, I thought I'd feel on top of the world, but I don't because that is life as a founder. What have you seen or like what, what advice would you give to a founder now? What should they be concentrating on? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest mistakes that early founders make is like a lack of focus. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I did this. So when we launched Gojimo originally, we, you know, we closed our funding round. We launched you know, what we kind of called the MVP of our product, but it included like a, an entire social network, a whole portal for like schools and teachers, as well as all the kind of revision content that was really what was core to what we were building. And naturally, like none of it really worked well because we were trying to do too much and we built it so quickly. So I think one of the most important things founders need to do is just remind themselves what the problem is they're solving and, and what the absolute essential stuff that is they need to do to build around that and, and you know, get it out as quickly as possible to test. I mean, the whole lean methodology, of course, but being entirely focused on that one thing. I mean, we talked about going to kind of conferences and, and networking before. When you're raising capital, that might be quite important. As soon as you raise capital, typically it isn't unless yeah. you're a B2B and like that's where your customers are. Yeah. You know, now we're building, a, this is my kind of second true tech startup. I'm not doing any conferencing. Yeah. Uh, whereas like I was a conference, you know, whore when I was building Gojimo. I mean, I was at every single, even like mildly related conference because yeah. I'm a natural networker and I kind of convinced myself it was beneficial. And I look back and like, yes, one or two of those contacts I made were probably quite helpful, but I could have made them through other other means sure. at a point where they were more timely. I did not need to spend A, travel, and B, spend hours, if not days, at conferences. So I think just, you know, being absolutely focused on like the single metrics that matter, the like, absolute MVP to solving the problem that you're addressing um, is so key. And it's to be honest, it's, it, that's what I look for in founders when I'm investing is yeah. like relentless focus. So that's that's important. And then I think like always remember like your budget is wrong. So if you've predicted like you're going to have all this growth in the next 12 months and raise another round, rounds take six months to raise. Yep. Your success always takes twice as long to, to kind of reach. So, you know, really you probably need that money to last 24 months. So however confident you are, like have that kind of buffer that gives you the time and breathing room you're going to need. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself like almost cyclically letting go of half your team because you can't afford them. Um, again, like another mistake I made was kind of, we'd always run out of time before we finished our fundraising around and we'd have to wave goodbye to some of our team members, which was some of the hardest like days of my career. Um, and it was largely down to like my mistakes as yeah. a founder or growing too quickly. Um, we've kept up, you know, we raised a decent chunk of money. We raised nearly 800,000 pounds for the intro. Our team right now, full time, is only four people. Yeah. Because again, we're staying absolutely focused on just building a great product that addresses all the issues with the current online dating ecosystem. We don't need a team of 10 to do that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm still doing customer service because we don't need, like, you know, the A is really valuable as a founder to like be on top of what sure. your customers dislike and are complaining about. But B, we don't, you know, we don't need a fifth hire to like deal with that and a couple of the other things. Yeah. So, yeah, stretch the money, remain absolutely focused. I think those are like the two essential things to do. Awesome. So you mentioned earlier, mistakes to avoid that, that kind of cold email, cold message without anything. Is there anything you've seen like in person when uh, you're meeting a, a founder, an entrepreneur, any mistakes that they need to avoid when they are talking to or pitching investors in, in person? Yeah. Well, I mean, this again could be like an entire podcast in itself, right? But yeah. the, I suppose kind of two of the key things are, um, well, one is that, that focus thing. So as soon as I hear someone say like, this is what we're building, and it will do this. 
and it will do that. And we're going to like launch in this country and we're going to market on this channel. You know, they, they talk about 500 different things. Often a common one is like we're doing B2C and B2B. Yeah. Don't do B2C and B2B. Like you're not going to do either well. That really scares me. Um, it's kind of that lack of focus and lack of discipline. And I think good VCs realize that, that you know, good VCs want to hear like a really positive plan with a, with a super focus and emphasis on on kind of a few key criteria. When they don't work, you know, you pivot and change and you go yeah. in another direction, but you don't try to do five things at once. So that's that's one. And then the second thing is, and we're not as good at at this in, in the UK with our kind of like British conservative manner, um, but it's, you know, it's displaying a certain level of confidence, which isn't quite arrogance, yeah. but um, that just shows you kind of, you know what you're doing. And so I think having that, that kind of plan in mind, even if it's completely uncertain, and even if it's going to change in six months time, and even if you're going to pivot 300 times um, in between that and your IPO, like that is really convincing. Well, it's really reassuring to an investor. So again, like the, the 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 kind of founders who sit me down and take me through like their twelve month plan and everything they're doing and why they're doing it that way, or at least plan to, reassures me and gives me a lot more confidence than the than the person who says, "Okay, we're going to do this, but if it doesn't work, we might do that." And if yeah. like we're not sure if that's going to be, you know, so we we may actually try this. Don't give me like buts and tries and mites and maybes. Yeah. Like you want to portray confidence and and kind of project you know a winning strategy even yeah. if it's going to change like three months after we give you money yeah i think if you're a seasoned angel investor and an operator yourself you know that things are going to change but you need to know that the team is going to have the confidence to at least try that first thing that yeah. they told you they were going to try yeah. and see it through to like a logical end point right and wear it out until they know for certain it doesn't work yeah like so you know it's, you don't want to try something for a week and be like ah no we, we, we couldn't quite make it work yeah. you, you want to have like we've dedicated six months to this it's still not working we've iterated on it three times we can now safely say that was a bad decision and we're shifting to plan B for that reason yeah. like again when you get that message I, I, a portfolio company of mine recently has entirely pivoted okay. changed sector changed product uh, but it was the right thing to do because they yeah. spent 12 months trying to make this first product work and it hasn't done that and so, like, I'm so pleased that they found a, a fantastic alternative. It's not at all the company I invested in, but it's super yeah. exciting. And they can, you know, safely say that they'd worn out all efforts on plan A. Yeah. If they tried to do both in parallel, or if after two months they'd made that switch because they just kind of couldn't face the lack of success, I would be much more concerned. Yeah, no, for sure. So the last question was a question I asked to to everybody that comes in. Um, you've only been investing for a couple of years, so you might not have a, the, the right answer to this, or the best answer to this. Bessemer Ventures has this very famous like anti-portfolio of companies that they met, could have invested in, but chose not to, that then went on to massive success. Do you have um, a, a company that is in your anti, anti-portfolio that you saw, could have invested in, and then that has now gone on to, to I guess it's only been a couple of years you've been invested, so at least yeah, raise I, it. I, no, I, I don't yet. I'm, okay. I will. Yeah. Um, and, and that will be depressing. No, I don't. So, okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. <laughs> 100% Henry when, when I'm Georgia. back in yeah. three years time I will share all the missed opportunities awesome. with you very openly we can talk about why I didn't do them at the time perfect George Burgess thank you very much thanks for having me thanks for listening do us a favor and leave us a review and if you know someone who we should have on the show or maybe it's you reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.